Welcome back to the fourth episode of Pop Quarantine. This is the final episode of our four-part series following pop culture changes pre- and post-quarantine, but we saved the best for last. This week, Justin and Ethan focused on some changes in protocol and visitor participation at the Utah Natural History Museum and the Utah Museum of Fine Arts. But why do you care? Let's turn the page and learn some history. Museums ensure understanding and appreciation for various groups and cultures. They promote better understanding of our collective heritage and foster dialogue, curiosity, and self-reflection. They serve to help future generations comprehend their history and recognize the achievements of those who came before them. The world's oldest museum was built by a Babylonian princess 2,500 years ago. Early museums began as private collections of wealthy individuals, families, or institutions of art and rare or curious natural objects and artifacts. Now, museums offer many different programs and exhibits that help educate adults and children about how our history has shaped our culture today. Justin went to the Natural History Museum last week to speak with their staff on how protocols have changed as a result of the pandemic and how they've adapted to these changes. Let's hear what insights he got from his visit. Take it away, Justin. Thanks, Kate. Well, at the museum, I spoke with a few different staff members about how the management policies had to change once they were able to reopen the museum after the initial shutdown. Here are some of the insights they gave me. We started um, cleaning, you know, things. Uh, We had styluses um, that we offered to guests um, to uh, touch or interact with exhibits. Um, Because at that time, we didn't know whether or not... um, uh, is spread through contact or whatever. Um, so we had all these things and, um, we started having more, uh, complaints from customers because we, back then we had a mask mandate. After a while, we got to the point where, um, I think there was a bill passed where, um, the museum wasn't allowed to, uh, tell people whether or not to, uh, wear a mask or not. And, um, so now we don't really have One of the things that's kind of been laxed is the capacity count um we're still the museum is still running on a limited capacity um of how many tickets we're allowed to sell for each half hour block and stuff like that and last friday when it was so busy we added a bunch more walk-in availability for it and i think when i was first hired in early september i don't think we would have been able to do that or felt comfortable doing that um and I was actually talking with uh, the executive director of our museum today. He would like to also lax some of the capacity restrictions and stuff that we have. But when it comes to our special exhibit, which is this enclosed space that people are really close together, it's just it's something we can't allow, stuff like that. Like most of the rest of the museum is fine. It's wide open spaces, plenty of spot space there are just certain areas that because they're so small and tightly cornered we can't allow more people in general and then with the pandemic it's even worse so as they pointed out while some regulations have been laxed as more and more people have gotten the vaccine things are still shaky enough that many of these protocols have to remain in place Who knows when places like museums can fully return to their pre-pandemic practices. I'm Justin. Back to you, Kate.
With COVID-19, museums had to shut their doors. Laura Lott, American Alliance of Museums President and CEO, released a statement regarding a study last year the museums that have reopened are offering at an average of 35% of their regular attendance, a reduction that is unsustainable long-term. There have been many different protocols that have been put in place in museums around the world. For example, some are installing plexiglass barriers at ticket counters, eliminating cash payments, or reserving special time slots for high-risk groups. To understand how these protocols have affected the Utah Museum of Fine Arts, Ethan sat down with Mindy Wilson, the Marketing and Communications Director at the Utah Museum of Fine Arts. Wilson has been working at UMFA for about nine years and has seen the ways that the museum has changed due to COVID-19. Take it away, Ethan. I spoke with Mindy Wilson, who is the Marketing and Communications Director at the Utah Museum of Fine Arts here on campus at the University of Utah. Mindy has been working at the museum for about nine years. She gave me her perspective on how the museum was affected by COVID-19 and what they had to do to keep operations running even when the doors had to be closed. Like we closed to the public along with the rest of the university on Friday, March 13th, and it was kind of unthinkable. I think three days before that, the senior management here had been in a meeting and we sort of couldn't imagine that we were going to come to the point of having to shut the doors. I mean, you know, our mission is to share great art with the public and (laughs) to shut the doors meant... um, at least at first thought, not to be able to carry out our mission. Um, but like so many other art museums and cultural institutions and businesses in, the, in this country and across the world, we pivoted really quickly mm-hmm. to digital and to figuring out sort of how we could deliver an art experience to um, our audiences um, through our website and mm-hmm. through virtual and online channels. What, what does that kind of look like when you're trying to move an art museum to you know, <laughs> give it to people over the internet? Um, we pretty quickly started, well, there's a, there's a, um, a member of my marketing team who handles the website and social media, and she's got a lot of great technical skills, and she was pretty quickly deployed to help us do digital sort of across departments. Mm-hmm. So her job, her job description changed overnight, really, and it really has never reverted back. She continues to support the entire museum in getting things online. So really what that meant, we have a pretty big education department that literally goes out to schools across the state and brings like art education to K through 12 students. Um, and suddenly they couldn't do that anymore. Um, so one of the first things we had to do, what they started doing was figuring out how are we gonna, how are we gonna bring art education <laughs> to students right. virtually. Mm-hmm. Um, so they very quickly started coming up with virtual tours, virtual classroom experiences, and a member of the marketing team um, really helped to make that happen. Also, we had all kinds of events we had to cancel. Some that we just canceled outright, others we converted to online. Mm-hmm. Like we have this program called Third Saturday for Families. Every third Saturday, families are invited in to make art based on some kind of exhibition or artwork on view at a museum. Um, so that quickly became a sort of video and online experience yeah. where using, um, using hands-on materials that you might have at home. So the educator in charge of that sort of figured out, how can I um, adjust these, these events that I already had planned, these activities, to something that people could do at home? Right. That turned out to be really popular because, as you can imagine, parents were really trying mm-hmm. to get kids occupied. With the museum closed and no students on campus for many months at the start of the pandemic, museum staff, along with the rest of the country, moved online. Yeah, it was sad. We really missed out on a great deal. And we were all at home working, too. In mm-hmm. fact, a lot of us continue to work largely at home, remotely at this point. You know, we learned that we could do that um, and still be super productive. 
So um, some of the events that we do that are geared toward campus, like um, we have an art and wellness series that includes yoga and mindfulness classes. Usually those would take place like downstairs in our great hall or throughout the galleries. Um, our educator who's in charge of those worked with the instructors of both to quickly make those virtual classes. Mm. Um, and so we were able to continue offering those to the student population. One of the interesting things we found is once we started offering these events online, it actually kind of started expanding the audience. Some programs got more participation than they did when they were in person, mm -hmm. and sometimes attracted people from out of state and even outside the country. So, you know, one of the many silver linings of the pandemic is that we learned, we learned a lot about how to do digital, and we also learned how valuable it could be for making the museum more accessible to right. everyone, which is really our goal. Because for one thing, think about folks who are, um, who have are physically disabled or are homebound in some way and can't get to the museum. Every once in a while, we would hear from folks like that asking how they could participate in something. So now we figured out a way that we can do that. Great. Um, I was just going to ask you, how long were you guys closed for? When did you guys reopen back up after COVID? Yeah. Um, we so we closed on Friday, March thirteenth, and we reopened on August twenty sixth. I believe mm -hmm. at the end of August, um, and. That was um, pretty fraught. We wanted to be open to the public again, but we really weren't sure it was safe. We for sure didn't want to be the cause of further community spread of COVID. Um, so we took a lot of care in figuring out how to do that right. We assembled a cross-departmental reopening team that met every week for a couple of months leading to that reopening to talk about everything, um, everything around safety. So our number one priority was to keep visitors and staff safe and um, be sure that we weren't contributing to the spread of COVID mm -hmm. in the community. When you guys initially reopened, did you see a lot of people coming back then, or did it take a while for people to, to start coming back to the museum? How was the, the attendance kind of like? The attendance was definitely lower than it had been before the pandemic, and I think there are still some people that haven't returned. Um, it started out with being somewhat younger people, mm -hmm. and then sort of our older patrons started to come, especially once the vaccine was available. Right. Then we started to see an uptick in attendance. Because we have to monitor um, the temperature and humidity levels in the gallery, we knew that our climate control system was really good mm -hmm. um, for keeping the air pretty clean. And we have a lot of space. Um, so it was, we found as visitors started to return that it seemed like they felt not only really comfortable, but really grateful to have this space where they can get out of the house, be around some other human beings, but at a very safe distance. Mm -hmm. um, and, and also to engage with art um, that was <laughs> reminding them that humans have been through tough times across <laughs> hundreds, of, right. hundreds of years, um, thousands of years. But COVID isn't all bad. It's led the museum to implement some positive changes that will likely stick around long after the pandemic is over to make sure things run more smoothly going forward. When we reopened in late August, we that is when we implemented our first online ticketing system mm -hmm. and at that point required people to make reservations before they came to visit. Um, a few months ago, I think we changed that from requiring to strongly encouraging reservations. Um, but we continue to do that, and um, with a holiday, we had a holiday market this past weekend, um, which we've had many years in the past, and this was the first year that we required reservations because we wanted to maintain, um, we, we've had capacity limits. I think when we first reopened in August, um, we had a limited capacity of about 75 people an hour. Now we've pushed that up to about 100 people an hour. We're always trying to align ourselves with whatever the university's protocols and best practices are. Um, so for this holiday market that we just had this weekend, we wanted to be sure that um, 
we kept the capacity at about 100 people an hour, so we required reservations. And amazingly, that didn't hurt attendance at all. We had our best year ever at the market. And it seemed like customers and vendors alike were really grateful that there wasn't a big crush of people. Yeah. So I don't know how long capacity limits are going to be in place at the museum, but that may be a lot longer lasting than, than we thought. Um, masks are encouraged as they are everywhere on campus. And you know we'll follow the university protocol and policy on that, but I kind of suspect we'll see people <laughs> with masks on their face. Right certain times a year maybe from here on out right. um, and certainly the big thing is that digital is going to be continue to be a priority mm-hmm. we're finally assembling a cross-departmental digital team to figure out how we build digital into everything we do so that when we from the beginning of exhibition planning we're thinking about what the digital um, components of that will be and we, we were doing that but this is a much more systematic approach at this point The museum took this opportunity to branch out into online content, but they still understand that there's simply no replacement for seeing art live in person. Um, Well, it's really interesting. There was a lot of talk here and in the museum field broadly before the pandemic about the need to create virtual exhibitions, like somehow have this virtual experience that would allow someone to sort of virtually walk through the galleries and see the artwork. And what we discovered during the pandemic is that people... um, people really miss the in-person experience. Like they were glad to have some sense of the exhibition, um, but there was real, really no real replacement for being here physically in the space. And it's not just being able to, um, I think one of the, one of the uh, advantages of it is like, you're literally standing face to face with a one of a kind object. You're getting the full sense of the scale of the piece. You're able mm-hmm. to detect and see the texture of it, the color. And you're doing it in community with other people. Even if you come alone and you don't talk to the other people around you, you're having that experience of other humans in the galleries. And maybe you are having some conversations or passing a few words with a security guard about a piece you particularly love. None of that can happen online when you're in front of a computer and every artwork is the same size on your screen. Right. The Utah Museum of Fine Arts, like many other museums, has rotating exhibits of pieces that move across the world, visiting multiple locations along the way. As you can imagine, scheduling these to come to Utah became more difficult once COVID hit. That's a really good question. Um, Yes, and in fact, um, we had an exhibition scheduled. So when we closed in March of 2020, we had these beautiful, two beautiful exhibitions of Japanese artwork on view that were proving to be super popular. We shut down and we were never able to reopen and show one of those again. It had to be crated up and packed and moved on to the next institution before we could let people back in, and that was disappointing. Then in the fall of 2020, we planned to do a major show of art by African-American and African artists um, from the Studio Museum in Harlem. Um, And we saw that that was maybe not gonna be possible. At that time, we didn't know if we were gonna be reopening, so we, we rescheduled. We pushed that exhibition to spring of 2020, sorry, spring of 2021, and we were able to pull that mm-hmm. off and make that happen. Um, so we had to do a little bit of juggling of exhibitions at that time. Um, and I think now as we plan anything, whether it's an event, whether it's an artist talk or full an exhibition, we now always have in the back of our mind, like, if, <laughs> hopefully, <laughs> fingers crossed, you know, and what are our contingency plans going to be? Despite all the challenges that everyone has faced over the last two years, the museum has pushed through and they're looking forward to an even better 2022. We're excited that in January, we're going to bring events back in person. So we've been allowing visitors back in the gallery since last August. 
but events have continued to be virtual. So um, we'll, we'll have an artist talk in January, um, an art, that art making event that I spoke about for families will return and will bring people back. So we're, we're anxious about that, but we think we've learned a lot about how to keep people safe and we're really excited to have people back in person for that. I feel like since people have started returning to the museum, um, that they've realized what is so wonderful about engaging with art, how helpful it can be to you in making sense of what's going on in your life yeah. right now. Um, and so that's really good that I feel like our value has been reaffirmed in the world, which is wonderful. We got so much great support from our funders and donors. Obviously, the University of Utah is a big funder of the museum, but a lot of private donors, a lot of private money supports the museum, as well as a lot of the government money that came through with the pandemic. Um, and so we're really so grateful for that and really know how valuable we are to the community and really appreciate that. With health and safety being the main concerns of the Utah Natural History Museum and the Utah Museum of Fine Arts, I'm itching to see their new exhibits. I'm sure you feel the same way. And with that, we wrap up our fourth and final episode of Pop Quarantine. We would like to thank Mindy Wilson for her wonderful interview and the rest of our fantastic interviewees throughout our four-episode season. On behalf of Ethan, Justin, Leah, and I, we also want to express our appreciation for listening to our podcast. With that, I'm Kate, signing off.